The following audio is via a Skype call. I've got one! I've got a special purpose! You do? Yeah, the Your mother's gonna want me! <laughs> It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. If our luck holds up and if we stay on the air, courtesy of the usual Herculean efforts provided by tall guy Nathan. Nathan Miller, how are you today, sir? Oh, I'm doing excellent. In fact, we got beautiful weather out there right now, just just 85 degrees in the mid-80s, obviously, and then uh, clear skies, especially great for yesterday. We actually had two C-17s fly over the entire Puget Sound hospitals as an honor to salute the healthcare workers fighting this war we're in. Nice. I think that's very, very nice. nice indeed. You could be describing Florida weather. I would say yeah. so. Yeah, sunny and 85. That's I think that's what we've got going here today. That is just amazing. That's where we're going to get some big-time rain here over the next 24 hours, and that's okay. We can use it. We're a little under for the year here in Sarasota, Florida, and environs. Happy to be with all of you in Puget Sound and beyond. We're going to have a first-time guest today, but I think we have to bring in this drop. Now, Suzanne, I, I get your humor Oh, yeah. And I think that your there's mother's some... going to love me. So ha there's happy Mother's Day to everybody. Happy Mother's if Day you're to everyone. A mother or if you act in the capacity of a mother. It, there you go. And of course, uh, as to celebrating special purposes, well, we'll just leave that to individual taste. <laughs> Steve Martin from The Jerk. So here we are day before Mother's Day. A lot of us still locked up, some venturing out and some even entertaining the prospect of getting out on the road, or how about going to the airport? They'd like to fly somewhere. Suzanne and I have discussions every day about our future travel plans, hopefully near future, and we're not sure whether we're going to drive or fly. It's a thing, and it seems to be a thing that shifts in people's perceptions and in terms of the rules and regulations. And don't we have the perfect guest today? Harriet Baskus is perfect to discuss all this and there are all the things you can discover once you get to wherever you plan to travel to in 2020. Let me start with her mad props here. This would be the abbreviated version and then we'll get Harriet on the air. Harriet Vasquez is the author of several travel books including Oregon Curiosities, Washington Curiosities. There is a book about a museums that I definitely want to get into if time allows, and also Stuck at the Airport. As soon as I saw that title, I said, oh, I need to talk to Harriet about that. For more than 20 years, Harriet Baskus has provided radio stories on unusual museums, airports, and other topics aired regularly on national public radios, All Things Considered, and on other nationally distributed public radio programs. Harriet has also served as the general manager of several public radio stations. We got a radio gal, including KBCS in Bellevue, Washington, KBOO in Portland, Oregon. And I have to ask her if KBOO is all ghosts all the time. I don't know, that'd be my kind of radio station. And KMUN in Astoria, Oregon, a station she put on the air. 
Well, we're putting Harriet Baskus on the air right now with us. Harriet, welcome for the first time to Manson Mitchell. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, we are definitely happy to have you stuck at the airport when, when Gary told me that you had a a website and a blog and a, a book by that name, I became very interested. But he also said your book's out of print. Oh, yeah. Actually, that book came out eight weeks before 9-11. So, oh, my, so, my gosh. So it should be out of print. But, yes, it came out eight weeks before 9-11. Um, and it was the first book before we had apps that could help us know what's in airports. It was a book that told you what was in airports around the country. I see. I I am enamored of travel, and I love to talk to people who are as well-versed as you. And there aren't many that I've met. I mean, you definitely, in the Facebook uh, promotion of your appearance today, I said that you're a roaming raconteur, and I meant it. I found that out when you did a half-hour interview with me on another show broadcast on 1150 AM called American Road Trip Talk. That was a lot of fun. We delved into as much as time would allow Oregon curiosities, and who knows, we may touch on a few of them in the course of this hour. But also, Harriet, Washington curiosities are very well known to you, and you articulate them beautifully in that book. There is stuck at the airport, and a lot to be said there. You also are an aficionado of museums, and so too, I don't know about aficionados, but we certainly are fans of the best museums around the country. And whenever we get the chance, Suzanne and I will go and visit them, particularly in the case of Chicago. Suzanne's a Chicago girl, and so when we go there, duh, plenty of museums to see. I get the excitement, I get the enchantment of museum culture, and the means of getting there becomes just more stories to tell, and you've got them. Yeah, and they kind of cross over, so yeah, that's where I, that's where I fall. One of the things that, that I note, Suzanne and I were talking about this this morning over our breakfast coffee, there are millions of people who, I would say literally millions, who are just itching. They would kill to be stuck at the airport right now, but they, like us, are not altogether sure about when it's safe to go back and what the protocols will be. Well, yeah, I think that's, and that's the discussion we have every day here in my house. When will we be able to go? Will it be safe? Um, and as you mentioned, will it be safer to fly than to drive? Um, I was thinking for a moment there that it would be safer to fly because there's so few other people flying and the airports are really going overboard. I don't want to say overboard, but are really doing their best to make everything clean. And so are the airlines. So I almost think it could be the safest thing to, to do first. You know, Harriet, you say that, but, you know, when, when Gary and I talk about flying versus driving, I talk about the tin can with the recycled air in it. <laughs> and, you know, do you know anything about how they handle the air on airplanes? Because I understand that just about every airline now is going to have you wear a mask, but it's still recycled air. So what do you, is there an update on that? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know all that scientific word for this, but air, airplane air is actually pretty healthy. They recirculate. They don't recycle it. They recirculate and clean it every minute or so. So you are breathing clean air that's in the airplane. So the reason you want to wear a mask and you want your neighbors to wear a mask is they might have a germ. You know, you don't want to sit next to somebody who's coughing 
any time or sneezing. And so that's why you want everyone to wear a mask. But the air on the plane is actually pretty clean and not bringing you germs. There's a thing about um, where you want to position the little air vent over you. And I've heard both uh, put it away from you so that any air gets um, that someone might have sneezed into goes away from you or put it over you so that air above you is always moving. So you might, there's two thoughts on that. But the air from the airplane is pretty clean. I'm glad you brought that up, Harriet, because within the last year, Susanna and I, who love to travel together, that's one of our must-dos unless circumstances intervene. They did in this case. And so on a trip to Chicago for a big high school reunion for Suzanne, got to meet a lot of her classmates. That was a great time. I had to leave a couple of days early for other responsibilities down here in Florida. So I flew from O'Hare to Sarasota Airport nonstop. And wouldn't you know it, I was one of the last people I was running. I mean, running to get to this flight. It was <laughs> the security and the cars approaching O'Hare. What a nightmare. We left a bit too late and there was a price to pay in terms of stress. But that wasn't the end of it, Harriet, because I got on the plane and the guy next to me, I was seated in the middle. That's where they could put me bulkhead seat. I had leg room. I'll say that for it. But I was sitting next to a lady on my right who was into her Kindle and just acknowledged my presence when I came aboard and that was it. The guy next to me, there was, he had to be 40 years old. Why is that important? Because mm -hmm. by age 40, you ought to know to cover your dang mouth when you're gonna sneeze and cough like you're about three steps from death's door. And this guy just was going on and on and I, he wasn't even sneezing into his sleeve. And to this day, I'm a little frustrated because, you know, I know how to speak my mind. I do a lot of that on the air. And yet I didn't tell this guy, dude, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to catch your droplets. And this was before coronavirus. It just would have been a nasty cold, which he apparently suffered from. And I didn't care to share in that experience. But I think I did a little bit anyway. So that was my experience. And then, then I have to go to the airport a few days later to pick up Suzanne and turns out she has a story to tell. I also sat next to a person who was both coughing and sneezing so violently and for so long that after uh, five or 10 or 15 minutes of it, I went and I put my nose and mouth inside the top of my shirt <laughs> for most of the flight. I mean, it was like he was really sick right next to me. And, and I was trying very hard not to get his germs, but failed. And 72 hours after coming home, I was as sick as he was, coughing right. and sneezing. So, you know, sometimes you just don't get lucky on planes when you're next to somebody who's sick. But being stuck on the airport, one of the questions that I had for you was, have you been to a lot of airports? Because I, I've probably only been to a handful of them. So if you've done a lot of flying, have you been in both large and small and medium-sized airports in, in your lifetime? Yes. I, that's, I, I've been to a lot of cities only to see their airports. I was in Amsterdam a long time ago when I started doing this project. I was in Amsterdam Airport five or six times before I ever went into the city. Same with Nashville. Um, so, yes, I've been to a lot of airports. I haven't been to all of them. That's one of my life goals is to go to all of them. But 
big ones, small ones, absolutely. And sometimes the smallest ones are the most charming. If you go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, you get off the plane and there's a volunteer there with a little basket of cookies and they hand you a, a wrapped cookie from a bakery across the street and they say, welcome to Fort Wayne. It's a, a charming little airport and one of the friendliest. That's very sweet. That's very sweet. When I was first living in Sarasota, Florida, you used to exit the plane on the tarmac coming down the stairs the way you did in the 1950s. And uh, this was probably in the uh, 70s. Back in the 70s, you still exited outside and then walked in. And now, of course, they, they have the, uh, the little gizmo that they bring up to the plane door but there so are I, still small airports with yeah. where you get off onto the tarmac absolutely right those seem to be the ones that get a heck of a lot of money from the federal government these days yes <laughs> that's right that's right but um there's one airport here in um in north of seattle in everett where they have it's very small two gates um the the Kane airport passenger terminal and they have, I think it's still the first glass um, walkways from the from the gate to the airplane in in our country. Um, so I like that one. Oh, that does sound nice. Yeah. Little glass walkways. That's right. Nathan, can I bring you in for just a second? Yeah, no problem. As a traveling man, from time to time at least... Harriet might be interested, as well as our listeners, in hearing about your adventure in beautiful downtown Burbank. Oh, yeah. Well, I was actually down there uh, to see Universal Studios with my brother. He actually went down for a K-pop concert. Anyway, uh, by the time our little trip was over, uh, we had to check out at the hotel around 11 o'clock, and our flight home, I think, was around like 4 or 5 p.m. So I decided, in the meantime after I checked out just to walk around Burbank and explore what it has to offer one last time. And eventually uh, my options ran out. So I was <laughs> stuck there just thinking, okay, what am I going to do now? And so I decided I would go to the Bob Hope International or as a municipal airport. And I heard they had a little museum of one of my uh, favorite World War II planes. I'm struggling to remember the name of it right now, but is the, uh, plane with kind of two tails, uh, kind of a wider plane. It's something, I think it was called a Thunderbolt. I don't remember the exact name, but I got to the airport and I went to the museum or exhibit and it was just like a little static display with a little brief history on a plaque. And then I figured, okay, I'll just go around the other areas of the airport. And this is around, you know, one o'clock. So I had three hours to spare before my flight. And I found out it's one of those airports with just TSA and your gate and there's a little <laughs> coffee shop but that's it the only gift shop was maybe a little magazine stand so I was stuck there for three hours with nothing to do and it's quite boring and this was before uh, iPads or iPhones became really a big thing so yeah took a while before my flight I would say you know, I think all of us have been stuck at an airport who do any flying. But, you know, on the opposite side of what Nathan was just saying, there are some airports, um, Tampa Airport comes to mind, 
where they have um, many, many shops, restaurants, a Marriott hotel, everything right there at the airport. And you could spend hours and hours just walking around and looking at things and not have to uh, go and sit at the gate for three hours. So when you think about airports, Harriet, what are some of the more spectacular ones that you've been to that really have a lot of things to see and do right at the airport? Um, well, first, Nathan, um, you at least saw, you went and saw the one exhibit there. Um, part of the reason I do a blog called Stuck at the Airport is because sometimes people will go to the airport and do nothing, just sit by the gate and, and not even go look for anything interesting. That airport actually has some more things that you probably didn't see, some great plaques and great history about that airport. Um, so in ones that I love, um, Portland Airport, Portland, uh, Oregon, for people in the Northwest, they're one of the few airports that still has many of the um, shops and restaurants and, and artwork before security. So um, until they become one of the airports that no longer allows um, non-ticketed passengers, you can go and shop there and have a great day there um, and visit with your friends before they get on their plane, have a beer, go to, uh, and things like that. Um, so that one's really great. And no sales tax. Um, Singapore Airport is designed for people to come and hang out. It has um, a two-story slide. It has the new Jewel um, kind of shopping center with a big waterfall in the middle of the building, a five-story waterfall. Um, I went there just for the opening of that, and they've got a Yotel right in the shopping center there. Um, Seattle Airport has great art and live music all the time. Austin Airport has live music, like 25 to 30 live music concerts every week. Some of my favorites. Oh, my gosh. And the one with the fountain, that was in Singapore with all the shopping? Yeah. So inside all that the, grandeur? Yeah, inside the, the main terminal, which has, I think, four terminals now. Um, I think they might have closed one or two of them during the pandemic. But they next to it, just last year, opened this thing called the Jewel, which was designed, really, for people to come hang out. Almost you would have – you would uh, – plan a layover so that you could go to the shopping center that has this amazing man-made waterfall inside the building. Yeah. In the middle of like a circular waterfall inside the building. It's kind of incredible. I have not been to Singapore. I doubt that I ever will be, but I do have a travel advisory. If those of you in Washington state, for example, who enjoy some recreational marijuana now and then, and you figure, well, I'll take some on the trip with me. And of course, it would be the stupidest thing in the world to do, but it happens, and sometimes it happens accidentally. I don't advise bringing that into the Singapore airport with you, no matter how pretty it is in there. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're pretty they, strict in that country, yeah. Yeah, like you have a, more than... Uh, like a single use for which there are extreme penalties anyway, including physical punishment there, they will hang you. So if you bring enough to supply a party and listen to some Grateful Dead records in your home, they will hang you. 
for doing this. And they make no bones about that. They don't care what country you're from. So that's uh, an extraordinary place to go. I think that would be a subject for another time, Harriet. I'd love to find out about what it was like, because I've talked to other people who've been to Singapore, and it, it's not your typical destination, I'll put it that way. But it's as far as all... Yeah. It, it, it is a beautiful place, and they see to it that it is, and, and the means by which they do that is the subject of some controversy going back many years there. But everybody that's been to Singapore does talk about the loveliness of the landscaping and an, a kind of enforced politeness that you experience there that's quite unlike what you would see if you get off a plane in at uh, LaGuardia or in New Jersey or someplace like that, Philadelphia. It's just, it's a a small world and yet a big world in terms of all the nuances of what it means to be a traveler. But I wanted to ask you, Harriet, in terms of being stuck at the airport, you thought enough of that kind of experience, and it certainly warrants the attention, that you wrote a book about that. Were there particular experiences where, oh, and this guy came up to me and you wouldn't believe the conversation I had? Does the book contain those sorts of stories? Um. Sometimes my website now does. Remember, the book was um, very early on, and it was a guide to what to do at airports, mostly around the country and Europe at that time, before anybody really thought about this and before people might intentionally spend time at the airport. Because remember, this was before 9-11, when you would just go to the airport 10 minutes before your flight sometimes, um, and now people were spending more time. Um, so... One thing I do love, I'm glad you brought that up, is that, um, you know, so much, so often when we're traveling, especially at the airport, we're stressed. We don't talk to other people. We're in our own world. But those conversations that you can have with people when you're traveling, when you're hanging out at the airport or on the airplane are, can be really kind of wonderful. Sometimes people open up to, to strangers when they don't, might not other times. Um, but going back to that small airport thing, the reason I started stuck at the airport was because I was stuck at a small airport in Kentucky for eight hours once. And after the fourth hour, I just started opening doors again, not before nine 11. I just was so bored. I just started opening doors and I found things they weren't promoting like nicer places to sit um, because I was bored. And I decided that there needed to be a guide to every airport in the country I told my husband that. He said that was the stupidest thing he ever heard. So that's what I decided <laughs> to do. <laughs> One time when Gary and I were stuck at Tampa Airport, they, our flight was delayed because it was coming in from Detroit to Sarasota, and they didn't have a crew, or they didn't have a crew that could fly anymore or something. And so they're looking for crew. The airplane will be here eventually, maybe, we hope. And and it was like, it was a, not eight hours for sure, but it was easily a couple of hours that we were sitting there. And as we were sitting there, it was one of those times when I wasn't feeling that well. And um, I, I said to Gary, you know, I wouldn't mind just going home. And And he said, okay. So we contacted the airlines and said, you know, we, we can't wait because it was going to be a few more hours before there was a plane. It was getting really late at night. And so we said, how can we get our luggage? We found out we couldn't get our luggage back. So our luggage took a trip and our luggage came back, but we had to wait till the next day to pick it up. So I thought that was kind of one of those odd things about getting stuck 
if your airport isn't close by, you know, it was a it was four hours of traveling for us, an hour there and an hour back, and then the next day another hour there and an hour back to just go get our luggage. I'm glad you brought up that example, Suzanne, because Harriet, now let's run this by your fertile brain. And with all the traveling you've done, you're, I think you're going to see the irony. I went there. We could. I got sick. We just decided I, I was ill and rather suddenly. So we couldn't make the trip between Tampa and Las Vegas. Okay, that's one thing. But then on our way out, I explained my circumstances to a lady at the baggage claim. And she said, I'm sorry, sir. You'll have to come back and get your luggage tomorrow. Once it's loaded on the plane, even if you're not taking the flight, the baggage must go to its destination. Now, I didn't say a word. OK, I just kept my mouth shut. I wasn't feeling well, needed to get home. I was irritated to have to come back. But that's the way it is. And this thought in my head just nagged at me. What are these people telling me that if I do not take the flight, that's one thing. But my baggage and its contents, whatever they may be, must go on the plane and fly with all those people who are leaving Tampa while I remain behind. Does that seem rational to you? Uh, well, I have two, I, again, I have two thoughts on that. Um, if it was, uh, was this before 9-11? No, no, there's no. a well okay. after 9 Okay, yeah. so nowadays I've been on flights that have been everyone seated in their seat and we're ready to go and a flight is delayed because somebody doesn't show up. Someone who checked in doesn't show up and they have to take their luggage off the plane. So that seems to be the rule um, or the law or the protocol. Um, so I'm surprised that they kept your luggage um, unless they saw that you were they identified you. So I, I don't know that. I don't I don't know the rules of each individual airline, but it does seem odd. Um, you know, maybe they wanted to depart and they didn't want to take their luggage off. But I thought they did have to take luggage off planes if a passenger was not with it. So I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure we had a plane, Harriet, because the plane was coming in from Detroit and it was late. Oh. So the plane the plane was late from Detroit. The crew couldn't fly anymore, so they were trying to find a crew. But I don't know that the luggage was anything more than somewhere in the airport. Yeah, it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't even loaded on the plane. But you know, as Gary said, you, you know, you you could have some uh, nefarious intentions and and put something in your luggage and then say oh i'm not going to take the flight and they're taking your luggage i mean right. that just well, seemed dangerous to me well supposedly every piece of luggage is scanned by the tsa now so you there shouldn't right. be anything in there that shouldn't fly but yeah you know sometimes right. the people at the counter you know they have a lot to do and they just might say something that isn't correct just to keep things moving along but including but, me <laughs> move along yeah but you know i just um i think what you're going to find when we do start traveling again is that so many of these things we've already mentioned are the etiquette and the rules will change the thing about sitting next to someone who's coughing you won't just be polite you know polite the polite thing will to do would be to to ask to be moved or to hand them a mask or to ask the flight attendant to give that person a mask, or to hand uh, one of your um, 
out of your emergency kit, which I always carry an emergency kit of supplies that we can talk about, you hand them a tissue. If they're not using a tissue, you give them one. Or they're not wiping down their seat, you give them one. This etiquette will change once we go back to traveling because we will be more protective of us and hopefully the people around us will be more uh, paying more attention to what they're doing. Well said. Harriet Vasquez is our guest this hour. We need to take our one and only break of the hour. And when we come back, if we're in Harriet's good graces by that time, we want to talk about some of her museum experiences. Suzanne and I have a few of our own to share. It's kind of interesting. And guess what? Here's a little heads up, Harriet. One of them involves well-maintained, preserved food. And that is, <laughs> that is one of your very interesting uh, I won't call it a quirk. I'll call it an avenue of interest for you, this idea of really old food and how it's been preserved. I've got one that uh, I think is just kind of an, an interesting story. It just puts you where there was a lot of action in World War II. We'll get into that and hear about museums, including some of the things they don't care to have you see. And Harriet Baskus can talk about that at length when we come back. Thanks so much for tuning in to Manson Mitchell. We will be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Manson Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Happy birthday to you. My son Levi was so proud to turn three, but he will never get the chance to turn four. I'm Nicole Hughes, Levi's mom. And while on a family vacation, his childhood was snatched away when I turned to close a bag of chips. He was sitting on the couch surrounded by friends and I split a brownie with him. And then somehow he slipped out the back door unnoticed down a flight of stairs and fell into the pool. When I jumped in to grab my son, the other half of the brownie was still in my mouth. I never thought my child would drown, but I was wrong. Drowning is the single leading cause of death for children ages one to four. It is silent and fast, and it can happen even when you aren't swimming. Drowning is preventable. Please talk with your pediatrician about how you can keep your child safe.
On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Daniel Levin, author of The Mosaic, to talk about archetypes in the time of pandemic. On Saturday, Kelly Sullivan Walden, the dream doctor, returns with how dreams can direct us toward our best life and keep us safe. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Exploring new territory every day. This is Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. We say farewell to Little Richard. Died, I guess it was today or overnight. I'm not sure exactly when, but within the last 24 hours at age 87. And uh, you knew with Little Richard, who was such an icon of the rock and roll era, and fairly early on, too, if he was playing, the joint was jumping. There was no doubt about that. So we do remember him fondly. Harriet, Harriet Baskis is our guest of this hour. Harriet, if people would like to find out more about Stuck at the Airport, you have a blog and a website and all kinds of good stuff. So please tell our listeners how they can be in touch with you and find out about the things that you've written. Sure. Thank you. So, yes, I have a blog called stuckattheairport.com, easy to remember. Um, it's also a Facebook page. Um, and I'm on Twitter at HBaskets, where I put stuff up all through the day, interesting things I find at airports. So, and I'm always, I love when people write and show me or show me souvenirs they, they've gotten at airports or share something that they've seen at an airport. I wonder, do you think there is really a lot of airport shopping in all those places, people grabbing shirts from different places that have all those different city names on them? Yes, actually, yes. And in fact, in Seattle, um, I, I think the Sleepless in Seattle movie is 25 or 30 years old or more. Um, that night shirt, Sleepless in Seattle, is still one of the big bestsellers at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. I'm always surprised when I see it um, right out there in front of the stores. Yeah, people do a lot of shopping at airports. Think about it. If you've got a lot of time, um, you're gonna one thing you're going to do to just entertain yourself is walk through the stores. And more and more airports are doing a better and better job of having really actually nice shops and nice things to buy, things that are made locally or are unique to that airport in those airport shops. I wish I could remember which airport it is, and honestly, I don't remember right now, but Gary and I were wandering around one airport that had some really, really expensive, exclusive artwork in it, and um, there there was nothing inexpensive in the whole place, and I thought, who would go in here and all of a sudden put down hundreds or thousands of dollars for these various pieces of artwork? I suppose they shipped them, you know, rather than people just trying to take them on a plane, but I thought that was that was pretty curious to go in there. I think it was Denver. Was it? Wow. If I recall yeah. correctly, yes. Yeah. The newer Denver. airport, not Stapleton. Not Stapleton, the newer Denver right. airport where it's further out of town. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, a lovely airport, too. Also, which I noticed in Las Vegas. And it, by the way, Nathan, if you're in Las Vegas at McCarran Airport for three hours and you're bored, that's your fault. <laughs> I was actually there uh, a couple months ago before all this COVID stuff happened. 
And you don't even have to be carrying around sacks of quarters with you when you go there. Now you can just stick a card in and and you play a video poker, et cetera, et cetera. I always thought that was fun about and I lived in Las Vegas for five years. So when I subsequently visited my family there many times there, I thought this is this is a fun thing to do. Once my when Suzanne and I were traveling between Florida and Seattle, we had to change planes in Las Vegas and we got off and my mother agreed to meet us there. And it was fun to see her for a little bit, too. She lived not too far from the airport. So uh, that's one of the really fun airports. And what that takes me to, by the way, when you talk about stores, we, in terms of a standard model of an attractive store with the name of the city on there, I think it's hard to beat CNBC stores, Harriet, with the name okay. right there and you walk in. That's Those are some pretty stores for airport stores. Yes, yeah, some of them, um, they do sometimes like CNBC or USA Today, they're, they're really just newsstands or glorified newsstands. But some of them, like Travel and Leisure, has a has a store also I've seen in airports. I think New Orleans Airport has that. Um, but, yeah, they're full of local souvenirs. They make a point of being local and to that city as well as having the, the things that you might, you know, snacks or newspapers or magazines. Yes, uh, very well maintained. And I thought, wow, there it is. That's a great way to kill some time and pick up a magazine and some candy, perhaps. So here we are at the airport. We're stuck at the airport. We're curious. We're pumped. We want to get where we have to go. And then occasionally, for me, it's been a fairly rare occurrence, but I always like it when it happens. I will spot a celebrity. And I'm sure that that's happened to you, Harriet. I can tell you, I actually shared a flight. It was a, a, a it was a connection flight between Salt Lake City and Las Vegas. And it was late night. It wasn't even a very crowded flight. And who did I wind up sharing that flight with, which I only knew when he got off, was Martin Sheen, the great actor <laughs> Martin Sheen. And, you know, they don't necessarily want to be so, hey, that's Martin Sheen. So I wasn't going to do that. But as he passed by, I said, I like your work. And he turned around and he just said, thank you. And then he went on his way, and I had this momentary encounter with Martin Sheen, whom I admire a great deal. And the other time, I was waiting for my mom to get off a plane at McCarran Airport. She had flown back to Pittsburgh to, for her high school reunion. Comes home, and who did she share a flight with but basketball great Hall of Famer Bill Russell. And wow. I know there's, there's one thing you don't do, and that's ask Bill Russell for an autograph. He will not sign an autograph. No way. Not going to happen. But I did go, hey, Satch, like that. And he just gave me, and he's about just under seven feet tall there. And he just gave me a nod, but like a deep nod, almost a bow, and just kept right on going. But there was that momentary acknowledgement. That's the fun stuff. I th I'll tell you, Harriet, I'd love to hear your stories. And I hope they're all fun, because the last thing you want is to go to the airport, spot a celebrity, and get shot down, insulted, ignored, or something that would tarnish your image of this person whom you admire. Right. And so celebrities are, you know, they're in the public. So you hope you're right. They're going to be nice. So I was um, walking through security behind Tony Bennett once. And um, my husband is still jealous because Tony Bennett turned around and smiled at me and said, hello, dear, which I still love. And he was so nice about it. But my very I remember that my very first flight and a lot of people do remember their very first airplane ride. So I was very little um, and share. I don't know if you have a older audience but sherry lewis was on my flight when i was very little sherry lewis lamb chop uh, lamb chop and i my parents sent me over i must have been six years old to get a 
an autograph, but I, Sherry Lewis was great to see, but where was Lamb Chop? I wanted Lamb Chop <laughs> autograph. <laughs> and um, she pointed, to this day, I remember, she pointed, she was traveling with one of those um, blue makeup cases that, you know, like those square little uh, valises that we would all travel with in the old days. Um, and she said, Lamb Chop is sleeping, likes to travel sleeping in this bag. And until I was a full adult, did, I kept telling people I met Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop, and someone said, no, you never met Lamb Chop. You met a makeup case. <laughs> so that's how good she was as a ventriloquist. But, but there is that thing of flying, if you meet a celebrity, or just that excitement of flying, of going to the airport, the possibilities. I mean, you might meet a celebrity, but you're going to go someplace. And that's the excitement of kind of what the airport is. It's like the they, airports say they're the front door to a city. They're, they're kind of like, it's all possibility. That's kind of why I like that. It's all possibility. You mentioned first flight. And, of course, I remember my first flight. And I actually flew alone on my first flight. Um, and when I was growing up in the Chicago area, my grandmother was absolutely gobsmacked crazy about airplanes, and periodically she would have my grandfather drive her out to O'Hare, and they would park outside and just watch planes go in and out. That was their entertainment probably back in the 50s and 60s, and um, she, when she used to fly, loved to fly, and was following this new 747 plane. And she said, oh, you have to fly a 747. My first plane trip was to Los Angeles from Chicago, and my grandmother insisted that I fly a 747. And I said, okay, so that was my round trip. And it did feel like I was, like an entire city was somehow moving off the runway. And I, I loved it. It was huge, of course. And then I flew a 747 back. And then the next opportunity that I had, I was going to New York, and I also flew a 747. Well, that ended up being my first several flights. And so then by the time I'm an experienced traveler having two or three or four trips under my belt, the next plane was smaller, and I felt like I was getting into a bread box. I thought all the planes were the size of 747s. <laughs> and those so, first yeah. experiences set you up for your expectations of travel your whole life, it seems. Yes, I thought all planes were really gigantic. You know, you, you're always going to have, you know, three or 400 people on a plane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't turn out to be that way, with two <laughs> aisles. Yeah. But, you know, people still go to the airport to see planes take off and land, like the plane spotters especially, because there's so many different kinds of planes and so many different liveries or, or, or plane um, signs on the side of them. Like here we've got Alaska Airlines has a lot of Disney ones and a lot of ones for different um, sports teams and cities. So it's always fun to, to just look for planes. The, in the last couple of months or the last, uh, it feels like months, the last couple of weeks, I've gotten excited anytime an airplane has gone overhead because there's so few of them right now. Yes, yes. And when it comes to plane spotting and also photographing them, the show that immediately follows ours with the wonderful Eileen Grimes, you want to talk about plane spotting. Oh, my God. That is one of her favorite hobbies, and she has just 
oodles and oodles of pictures, many of which she posts on Facebook, about all these jets and international flights as well. Oh, here comes Lufthansa. You know? And she loves to do that kind of thing. That's the kind of hobby that makes going to the airport fun, even if you're not getting on a plane. Unfortunately, that, that hobby has seen uh, better days because I remember driving out to LAX when I lived in Orange County, California in my 20s there. And I would go out to LAX for the sole purpose of walking around the airport. It was, and we're talking about the 70s. It just was not any problem at all. And you could walk around, see the sights, go to the stores, get something to eat, have a good time, and then drive back home. Something like that now is a very crimped experience by comparison, I'm sorry to say. But a lot of airports have plane spotting areas kind of away from the terminal where you could probably still do it because it is a safe social distance experience. Drive up, sit in your car and watch planes taking off. A lot of uh, planes are still flying, but they're full of cargo instead of people right now. So at the bigger airports, you could see that. And I think in the Northwest, I'm hoping that the, the, the planes full of cherries uh, will still take off this year to go to Japan. Ah, yeah. Rainier cherries, especially. Yeah. Um, I lost my thought. Well, I have a thought. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll substitute my thought for your thought. Okay. I had teased this before the break, so let me get to it. Suzanne and I went to the Museum of Science and Industry oh, in yeah. Chicago. What an extraordinary time. We also went to the Field Museum. Wow, that was incredible. You, you, one visit there is not nearly enough. But at the Museum of Science and Industry, we went into an exhibit, Harriet, where they had a captured, it wasn't destroyed, on orders of high command not to destroy this German U-boat. They brought it back safely, intact, made what repairs were necessary. And this captured submarine somehow came into the possession of this Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And they made a wonderful exhibit out of it. They had some of the artifacts from this submarine that luckily were retrieved for posterity to look at, to get a sense of the history of this great war. And wouldn't you know, one of the things that caught my eye, I think I have a picture of it, there was a round tin of high quality bread and a lot of this stuff was hard to come by during the war, naturally, a lot of rationing. They had a tin of this bread that was made exclusively available to submariners on these U-boats because in Nazi Germany, the if you were on a submarine, you were a special person. In the hierarchy, they got preferential treatment, so they got foodstuffs that were not available to the general public because there was this war on, and with all the rationing, nevertheless, they were given first-class treatment under the circumstances. And I know that's a passion of yours, Harriet, to, to see really old food <laughs> preserved, and you're looking right at it. It's a, it becomes a historical artifact in its own right. Yeah, I really love that, and I've been collecting stories of that. Things like that that are in museums, that's how I first came across it. Um, there actually turns out to be a lot of people who have, like, normal people who have saved like slices of their wedding cake but they're slices of wedding cake that are like 200 300 years old that have been passed down generation to generation and end up in museums um and there's food that is um by mistake just sticks around like people find you know a, a, a container of jello in their grandma's cabinet that's from 1922 but it's still there I love that. And some of it just has holds the memory of a family um, sometimes because a piece of food is kept intentionally. Those are the stories I love the best. 
I remember the um, I remember the Seinfeld episode where Elaine decides that she can't go without having a slice or two or more of the wedding cake from uh, Wallace Simpson and the abdicated king. Was it King Edward? There, yes, there in that episode, how that turned out. I thought it was a yeah. funny way of looking. I love that episode. But the idea yeah. is, there are people who then will collect these things. They'll actually go to auctions and buy them. Yeah. And, um, and anytime there's a royal wedding, a lot of those pieces of cake from previous royal weddings um, goes up for auction. And that's, I'm not allowed to go online and bid for those because uh, it'd be too tempting for me. But yeah, it always comes out. <laughs> and um, I think what they do, there's actually more, more than I thought because they actually, the royal family gives boxes of cake as thank you gifts to people, um, to a lot of people. Um, around the world. So there's quite a bit of it. Some Someday I'll get one. I think that would be great. I hope that happens to you. I love that. I did want to ask you, Harriet, because you are a museum aficionado, as earlier stated, I would love to know about the times when you went to a museum and doing your own spelunking, as it were. You found that there were items that may have been a little hard to find and others that weren't meant to be on display for reasons that didn't necessarily have to do with lack of space. Right. Um, so in going around, um, when I used to go around the country and do stories for NPR about weird museums, um, I had to, I would spend a lot of time, and when I did Stories, those um, curiosity books for Washington and Oregon, I'd spend a lot of time in very small museums. And it would just be me and the volunteer who hadn't seen another visitor for maybe weeks. Um, so I would say to them, show me your favorite thing. And they would show me, I would get to see a cool thing. But then one woman turned to me one day and said, oh, if you think that's interesting, you should see what we have in the back room. And that's when I realized, oh, there's a whole other world there. And some things are in the back room because especially the small museums, they're too valuable to display. A museum might not have the insurance to put something on display that's very valuable or, or very rare, um, and so it's locked away for that. Um, the Smithsonian Museum um, has a great collection of, of condoms, which they won't put on display. They collect them for the, the graphic part of the science collection, but they're not on display because the Smithsonian is a little too political to put condoms on display. Um, some things, also Smithsonian has some of um, Marie Curie's um, radium, too hot to display, literally. Um, and then some things are like, um, let's see, what's a good one for you? Um, or just weird, like they think no one wants to see them. In um, Frankfort, Kentucky, um, they've got this really scary doll that the curators even don't want to look at, and they don't want to put him on display. So things like that. Um, every museum has more things in the back room than they can or will show you. You know, I started to laugh when you started out talking about the condoms at the Smithsonian because Gary and I went to Miami Beach a few years back and they had a museum of sex. And oh. I, I, I said, oh, we got to go there. We got to go see that. And so we went to this museum of sex and this was room after room after room after room. You became very... Um, uh, it, it wasn't the least bit uh, fluttering to you after a certain point because yeah. it was it was rooms by decades, by country, by different uh, items. And it was there was so much of it. 
but it was all based on sex and genitals and it it became to the to the end where you just uh, you didn't think a thing of it when you when you got out of there and so the the shock of it kind of of goes away when you when you're in a place like that for two or you know two hours in in you know six or eight or ten different rooms that have everything from statues to photos to um, things from hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, I all remember kinds of one. fertility gods. Oh my gosh! A sizable object, Harriet. Oh, this is—I I just stood there <laughs> transfixed. And this is one of three in existence. I didn't know that Stanley Kubrick required three for his purposes. Stanley Kubrick, the great director of *A Clockwork Orange*, and *The Murder Weapon*. For those of you who've seen the movie, *The Murder Weapon* is on display there. And it's, it is actually one of the ones used for the movie. It takes up quite a bit of space, actually, there. And I looked at that, and I thought, wow, I can't believe that. That movie it had me transfixed there all those years ago. It's one of the most incredible films I've ever seen. And there was the <clears throat> murder weapon there. And I just thought, this is a place unlike any other I've ever been, a museum of sex where it's just understood that you're going to see a whole bunch of naughty stuff when you go in there. And if that's not it, for it, you, then don't go in. But it wasn't even titillating. It was it was, it was curious. Yeah. It was fascinating yeah. because, you know, they're not laying it out like a Playboy magazine. They're they're really a museum. And, and you know, Gary's talking about this big, large uh, phallus that was there. There was a, a woman that said, would you take my picture, please? And I said, <laughs> OK. So I took her phone and I took her photo. And she goes, I just want to tell my boyfriend he ain't so big. <laughs> <laughs> and that picture I took had to be wide angled, as a matter of fact, yeah. to fit everything well, in. Well, the wonderful thing about the modern world is that there is pretty much a museum for everything. Yes. And kind of the yeah. wonderful thing about the modern world right now is so many museums are um, offering virtual views of their collections. So um, mm. this month I've been um, taking an extra special tours of, of museums every day. And I'm so I'm pleased. I'm glad it was they didn't do it when I was writing my book. But so many things that used to be in the back room are now accessible through through uh, virtual tours or digital collections and you can spend all day looking at some of these collections it's really pretty wonderful absolutely so we would love to have you back harriet baskus and we'll talk next time if you please about your books concerning the curiosities that you personally found researched and wrote about in washington state and in oregon so we'll make it about the northwest next time i'd love to Oh, that's great. Coming up, we've got Jupiter Rising. With the plane spotter herself, Eileen Grimes. Yes. Doug Johnston with her. And, and join us next week once again. Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific. And, of course, always available live streaming at 1150kknw.com. Have a safe and happy weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.